Hello, and welcome back to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. This week, we're focusing on the open enrollment for individual health insurance that begins next Wednesday, November 1st. And we have a guest, Lori Lotus of the brand new group Get America Covered. We're taping on Thursday this week at 9.30 on October 26th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today we are joined by Margot Sanger-Katz in the New York Times. Good morning, Julie. Sarah Cliff of Vox. Hi, Julie. And Alice Olstein of Talking Points Memo. Great to be here. Okay, questions. Uh, While the lead-up to this year's open enrollment hasn't been quite as nuts as the first one in 2013, I think we all have sort of PTSD from that one, uh, I think we can stipulate that it's been almost as crazy as that. But I guess the first thing to talk about is that the ACA is indeed still the law of the land, at least for now. So what does that mean? Well, it's it's been a complete mixed bag, and we've been getting so many mixed signals from HHS about their posture and attitude towards implementing and upholding the Affordable Care Act. We had the uh, CSRs going away, more turmoil there. We had the um, the release of all of the plan data yesterday, and that wasn't a given. They didn't have to do that, but it was very transparent. And by plan data, you mean, and we'll talk about this in yes, a minute. Yes, the pricing. The, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. How, For how window much, shopping. How much insurance will actually cost where you live. Exactly. And so giving people a whole week to take a look at that. And um, the way it was laid out was pretty user-friendly and, and showed the the cost differences in a, in a way people could understand. And all kinds of uh, researchers are digging into that and we'll have lots of things to say. Um, and uh, yeah, and, but we don't know going forward, are they going to release enrollment numbers doing the snapshots as open enrollment goes on? And will people be able to use that data to adjust their strategies and do outreach in, in the wake of cutting the outreach budget? So there, there's still a lot of questions, but also some signs that things are going somewhat similarly to previous years. And also the, the news from the IRS, right, that, that they're going to enforce the individual mandate. It's sort of, it seems to me like the professionals have taken over this process. So uh, we saw with the release of all this data for window shopping and like files with that those of us who want to analyze big spreadsheets can analyze. Uh, there also was a press release that came out of CMS. And among the things they said was that they're going to staff the call centers at the same uh volume as last year, which was, I think, not a given. So it just seems like a professionalized process. There were some choices that were made on the website design that were clearly made in response to the weirdness of the pricing this year. And it's very consumer friendly. And the IRS said last week that people who do not say on their tax return whether or not they had insurance, their tax return is going to be rejected. And that's actually a pretty extreme step for the IRS to take. I asked a bunch of tax experts about this. And the only example of something that anyone could come up with that where they would reject your return is if your social security number didn't match your name or something like that. So it's or not, if you didn't sign it. <laughs> yeah, like they're really, it's actually pretty rare for the IRS to reject a return. So I think this is a sign that they're serious about making sure people answer that question and enabling them to uh, enforce the mandate. So, oh, Although the, weirdly, I mean, that, that this was a change that the Obama administration had ordered for this past tax filing season. 
and the uh, the incoming Trump administration told them not to do it. So there was that that I think that raised a lot of questions among insurers about whether there was going to actually be enforcement of the I, individual I think it mandate. It doesn't or totally not. answer the question about whether there's going to be enforcement because there's a lot of judgment calls that the IRS has to make once they get these they get people's tax returns. They have to decide. How closely am I going to inspect whether they told the truth? How am I going to evaluate what counts as a hardship exemption? There's a lot of discretion both by HHS and IRS about who actually gets subjected to a penalty. But this is definitely a sign that they are at least going to look and going to require people to report that information, which hasn't been the case in the past. And in addition to the call center announcement in that same press release, they said that they will be doing lots of text and email reminders, especially for previous enrollees to to renew and to shop for a plan. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to that in a minute, too. Um, but but as Alice mentioned, they did release uh, a week in advance of open enrollment, the, the actual premiums and actual places. Um, it's still early, obviously. I confess I had trouble getting the whole thing to open. Um, but what I, Sarah, you wrote something brief last night, right, about about what we think we, we know about premiums. Yeah. So like Margot said, it's a really weird year for pricing because of the cost sharing reduction subsidies and how insurance companies, most of them seem to have done some level of pricing to adjust for the fact that they are not being paid. I think a handful of states still have it in their assumptions that they are being paid. I think actually D.C. is one of those locations. Well, it doesn't which... matter for D.C. because they have almost no one that gets oh, cost sharing right. reductions. Okay. So That's right. Because that so, yeah, so many people actually get Medicaid. Yeah. So, um, so it seems like it's a bit of a mixed bag, but you do have a number of places where the gold plans are actually going to be cheaper than the benchmark plan, the plan that those subsidies are tethered to. So there actually are some people who could get a pretty good deal, who are going to get a big subsidy that could purchase them a gold plan, a more robust insurance plan. Um, David Anderson at Duke is somewhat prolific on this issue, and Charles Charles Gabba at ACASignups.net. So I think if anyone in the podcast is listening to the podcast is interested in these issues, they're going to really be digging into this data pretty deeply. They have already. You know, I was talking to David just yesterday, and he's telling me he's already identified, you know, 30 counties in Pennsylvania where the gold plan is actually cheaper than the benchmark plan. So it's really important that people shop. There are several states. Yeah, I think it's true. very widespread, and we're, and we're and still trying to figure out how widespread. About, this could be wrong, but my initial look at it yesterday is about 16% of counties, which counties is a weird measure, yeah. but about 16% of counties, the cheapest gold is less than the cheapest silver. Wow. Well, we should end, and before we go any further, we should actually explain, we, let's get a little wonky, and I said there, <laughs> there will be math in the podcast this week. We should explain why this is happening, what states have done uh, in the absence of these cost-sharing reduction subsidies to make up for it while trying to shield consumers. So, okay, this is a little wonky. (laughs) But basically what a cost-sharing reduction subsidy does is it takes a silver plan, which is sort of a mid-level insurance plan, tends to have a deductible in the $3,000 range, and for people who earn below a certain income threshold, it makes it into a plan with an extremely low deductible. And the way that works is the insurance companies basically lower the cost sharing for the consumer, and then they send the bill for that discount to the federal government. The federal government pays them back. So the consumer is buying a plan that, like, sort of theoretically has a higher deductible, but then these discounts get applied. And what the Trump administration decided to do was to stop paying back the insurance companies for those discounts. And so what the insurance companies and the state regulators in most states decided to do was 
they still have to make up that money. They're still going to have to. It's in the law. It's in the law. They have to provide those discounts to low income people. And there are various ways they could have done that. One way they could do that is just raise the price on all insurance to kind of make themselves whole. But instead, what most have done is they have increased the price just on that category of plan, on that silver plan. And it turns out that the silver plan is also the plan that everyone's subsidies are calculated based on. So we are seeing these weird situations where the silver plans are really expensive, but the other plans, the increases are much smaller. Um, Avalier Health did a quick analysis that they published yesterday where they found that the average silver plan is increasing by, I think, 38 percent for next year. But the average gold plan, which is a plan with like a $1,500 deductible is only going up by 16%. So you can see there are these places where the silver plans are shooting up, the gold plans are going up by less. And so you kind of see them. Uh, sometimes the silver plan actually passes the gold plan. And so even though it's designed to be a less expensive plan with a higher deductible, it's turning out to be a more expensive plan with a higher deductible. So a consumer could possibly take their newer big tax credit, which is new and big, because it's the premiums based went on up. The cost of the silver <laughs> and go plan, buy which went this, up. <laughs> go buy like a plan instead of their three thousand dollar deductible plan, buy the plan with the fifteen hundred dollar deductible for a cheaper price. I think it's a year where it is so important that people shop for coverage. And it's a little worrisome that the uh, so the navigator program has been cut so significantly because there are going to be less people helping people navigate a pretty complex year on healthcare.gov. Yeah. And yeah. if you are someone who buys their own health insurance, it is really important this year. Do not just renew the product that you had last year. It may turn out to still be the right thing for you, but it really behooves you to take some time and look at all your options. If you're someone who gets a subsidy, you may be able to get a gold plan with a low deductible for a lower price than your silver plan, which is great. You may be able to get a bronze plan, which is a kind of higher deductible plan for free or for an extremely low premium. And if you're someone who doesn't get a subsidy, you have to be the most careful shopper of all because some of these plans, the prices are going to go up dramatically and other ones they're not. And that in some states is true even within the silver category. So there may be some silver plans where the price went up by 30% and others where it went up by 8%. You want to make sure that you pick the right plan, still has all the characteristics that matter to you in terms of the network and the deductible and everything else. But you don't want to get stuck with one of those super expensive plans. There may be a better option for you, but it may not be obvious if you don't look carefully. And also, it's it's worth reminding people that the the sign up this year is only six weeks long, um, so it's it's much it's it's half as long as it's been. Uh, and at the end, with it's going to be harder. It may be harder to get on the website. The website was not surprisingly a little glitchy yesterday morning. Um, it seemed to have gotten a little better by yesterday afternoon. But you know, there's always why a big are we not? Crush why are, like I think that is kind of surprising. Like it, it's just, they actually had fixed it by the afternoon. No, or? no, no. I mean, like we were the only ones going on <laughs> yesterday morning. Like it really probably should have been working. It was making me nervous that it was glitchy. <laughs> Like on Wednesday, there are going to be a lot more people mm-hmm. logging onto that website. Next Wednesday, yes. yeah, yeah. That's well, what, whatever. It is, but the the point is, it, it, you have a much shorter window to sign up, and also there's this whole whole automatic re-enrollment problem that that we heard about last week, which is that uh, that they're gonna that people get automatically if they if they don't go in and shop, they get automatically re-enrolled either in their same plan or in plan that's um uh, that's comparable to their same plan, and this used to happen with. 
it has happened in the middle of December, but in the middle of December has always been the middle of the sign-up period. So if you got auto-re-enrolled into a plan that you didn't want, you had time to change. Apparently, the auto-re-enrollment is still going to happen in the middle of September, but by the time you figure out what you've been December. enrolled in, it's yeah, in December, it's, it's too late. I, I actually think too much has been made of this as a problem. Like, December 15th is the end of the enrollment period. If you have not picked a plan by then, I think it's actually the government is doing you a favor by at least enrolling you in something. In the past... That's been in the middle of the enrollment period because the enrollment period has has run longer. But I think it would be much more problematic if they were auto-enrolling people in the middle of this period and not letting them change. But they're waiting until the very last day. I think it's I mean, I think that seems like a pretty good policy to me. Although if they, if they auto-enroll you into your silver plan that now has the entire... No, it's it's definitely true that there are going to be a lot of people this year who, if they are auto-enrolled, they're going to be auto-enrolled in the wrong plan that is much more expensive than other options. But... If they do not actively go and select a plan and the enrollment period is ending, I think it is better for them to be enrolled in some insurance than none. The other thing I found interesting sort of wandering around the website yesterday is that if you, you know, there's always been a button for find local help, um, which usually leads you to navigators and assisters and all of the people whose budgets have been cut. Now, if you click on find local help, they give you actual insurance brokers and they list them first, um, you know, as if they're sort of in order. And it does, there's a, it says that the, that it's a broker as opposed to an assister. But I would, I would be very surprised if most people who are looking for help would know the distinction there. Um, <laughs> was there any discussion of this before it happened? I mean, it kind of speaks to like the tension. I think Alice, is, or I think you were mentioning like the professionals taking over to some extent, but there's also these like signs that it isn't a normal open enrollment. This isn't like the Obama administration. This is the Trump administration. And even though there are a lot of things, you know, we've talked about the, um, you know, staffing the call centers, displaying the plans in order of price, there are still like, the fingerprints of an administration that has a very different view about this law kind of all over um, healthcare.gov, all over this open enrollment period. Um, it's not it's not going to be like last year, even if you have the professionals kind of running the show at some level. And, and of course, I mean, it's worth pointing somebody, oh, Peter Lee from Cover California was pointing out that the shorter enrollment period was actually something that the Obama administration was going to do. I mean, yes, it was the Trump administration that did it, but that was something that was always in the cards. It was something that the insurance industry had asked mm -hmm. for. They thought that the enrollment period was too long and they wanted it finished before the, the first of the year so that people wouldn't be signing up into the new year. Although then our, our good friend Brian Hales insists that it really should be in the spring when people have money <laughs> from their tax refunds and not around Christmas when people don't have very much money. But I think that's that is definitely a debate for another day. Um, and I guess the other sort of interesting thing out of out of yesterday's news from the administration is that unlike the Obama administration, they're not going to try to guess how many people are going to sign up. <laughs> that, that, I mean, that always felt to me like a, I mean, I would prefer it if they would guess because it would just yeah. give us some sense of what their expectations are. But I always felt like that was a bit more of a political exercise than it was a really rigorous one. I think it's 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 hard to know. And everyone always wants to set expectations in a way where they're going to exceed them. And well, also, every every year of open enrollment, it, it becomes you're you're going after people who are harder and harder to go after because all the low hanging fruit have already been signed up, uh, signed up. Exactly. And so I think that I think that the the goal setting maybe was never intended to last forever, just just like the extremely lengthy open enrollment period. But in this context, people suspect that this is yet another sign that they're not committed to signing up as many people as possible.
The, well, the other bit of news that happened yesterday is that the judge in California uh, ruled that he's not going to stop the Trump administration's action of ceasing these cost-sharing reduction subsidies. So, like, we are definitely in this world. We're going into open enrollment period with these subsidies not being paid. Window shopping has happened, so it means the prices are final. I think there's some plans in North Dakota that are still a little bit in question. But I think, like, we kind of know what it looks like Yeah, there were, there were only, I think, what was it, four states that hadn't uh, assumed that there was a pot that hadn't prepared for the possibility of these uh, payments stopping. And I know one of them was Maryland, and they just decided uh, yesterday or the day before to go ahead and do what most of the other states are doing, which is adding adding most of the, the increase onto the silver plans on the exchanges, actually, which we didn't talk about. A lot of these, they, they're basically taking the, the money that the, the President Trump says he won't pay and making the federal government pay it anyway via the, the uh and the, pay, pay the more premium because it's right, going to go more. to be a higher income bracket. That's right. So, it was interesting in the California case. One of the things I thought was interesting was he said it might even create more chaos. Like people, the judge, to, said, the judge this, yeah. said, you know, he's not going to issue this intervention because states actually, it seems like over the past, I, I can't even remember when the CSRs are pulled, but over the past week or so, they've been gone. States have like reacted pretty quickly. They've like looked at what other states are doing. That they actually triaged this. It, it seems like in a way that will protect a lot of consumers. So I actually am like a little bit sympathetic to this California judge's take that if you're gonna, you know, one week before open enrollment, totally reverse things. That it could actually be more chaotic after states have adjusted to this like new world order. Well, in well, California, Cal- Cal- yeah, it's particularly yeah. weird litigant in this case because they actually figured this out six months ago <laughs> and they've been the pioneers and they have a whole plan and it includes a consumer outreach plan, which they have already begun to tell consumers about how to deal with this weirdness. Right. So, and, and, it was, and yet they were the ones leading the lawsuit yeah. <laughs> and, and arguing that this was an absolute emergency and the administration and it, had to be stopped right. with a restraining order. It's uh, almost like states prepared to well, to make the case <laughs> that this was a disaster. That's what the judge was saying. He yeah. was saying, I'm not convinced that there's imminent harm here. And I think that pouring all this money back in at the last minute could actually do more harm. Um, but it's important to note that the, the underlying case is still ongoing. All that happened is the temporary restraining order was was denied. But right. They, they, the might, they overall, could eventually yes. decide, which what everybody assumes they're going to decide, is that the House who started this lawsuit in the first place to stop the payments probably doesn't have standing, in which case the payments would have to continue. And and uh, the California Attorney General's office was talking to me yesterday and, and you know, of course they would say this, but they were they were arguing that a lot of what the judge said bodes well for them down the road. They He agreed that the states do have standing in this. He agreed that but, you know, on on some of the underlying questions, but right now it is baked in. Yeah, the, to, to to channel my my favorite, you know, Nick Bagley, who's a law professor at the University of Michigan, who specializes in just this sort of thing. He said, you know, to to get this injunction to to require the administration to resume the payments, they would have to show both. Im- immediate harm, imminent harm, and a probability of success on the merits. And he thought that they would fail on the second one. But by, because of what the mm-hmm. states have done, they actually failed on the first one. They just, they, he said that, you know, if he were to, if the judge said that if he were to intervene, a lot of people who were, who might get, as we've pointed out in this discussion, cheaper plans. Better plans right, for less money. Better plans yeah. for less money wouldn't get them, which seemed kind of hard to argue with. Mm-hmm. 
So we will we will know more by the time we, we speak again. There will be open enrollment will have opened. Um, before we go to our interview, though, I do want to take at least a minute and talk about the Children's Health Insurance Program, which is still waiting to be reauthorized. Has there been any news at all on this front? Well, the news is that there is no news. It, we're almost at the month anniversary of CHIP uh, officially expiring, although as we've talked about on this program before, um, children are not being thrown out of hospitals uh, as we speak. So what's happening is that states are just slowly creeping up to the cliff of of running out of money, although the federal government has sent emergency stopgap funding to several states. But the longer it goes on, the more dangerous it gets. And Congress seems to be busy with things like tax bills and fighting with the president. Yes. And when the president came to Capitol Hill, uh, healthcare was not really on the agenda at all. It seemed to have completely turned the page on that. Well, we will see. Well, now let's get to our interview, which is also about open enrollment. Then we will come back and do our extra credits. So we're pleased to welcome to the podcast Lori Lotus. Lori is an Obama administration alumna. She ran communications for the agency that runs the Affordable Care Act. But she's here today because she's the co-founder of the new group Get America Covered, whose goal is to help people sign up for health insurance in the individual market. Thank you, Lori, for stopping by. Thanks, Julie, for having me. So why did you feel the need to start this group and who else is involved? So I started the organization with Josh Peck. He is my co-founder. We worked together at CMS where he was the chief marketing officer for healthcare.gov during the last enrollment period. So between the two of us, for the last three years, we've been overseeing outreach and awareness. Uh, We, of course, brought along some very close friends. So our former boss, Andy Slavitt, who was the acting administrator for CMS, is serving as one of our national co-chairs. And we really started putting this together a couple of months ago when it became clear the administration wasn't going to do what we thought they needed to do to really get people the information they needed to sign up for health care. And then some announcements were made, like the cuts to the Navigator funding. uh, And not more importantly, but for me personally, the budget that I oversaw, the outreach and advertising budget, was cut by 90%. And for Josh and I, that right there was, oh, no, we've got to do something, because that sort of sends a message about how they're going to approach this open enrollment period. And if they are not going to put in the resources, and I don't just mean money, I mean the man hours and the the emphasis on doing everything they can to reach people, then it was going to take other people stepping up and sort of stepping up their efforts to try to fill the gap. Now, they've said that, you know, they they found that that the advertising and outreach wasn't very effective and that besides by now, this is open enrollment five. Everybody knows about the Affordable Care Act and how to enroll. (laughs) Well, a couple of things. Uh, One is they have the evidence uh, because it's it's work that we started when we were there, which was testing and retesting. And because what we wanted to do, we wanted to make sure that we were getting the best value of every dollar, that we were spending it wisely, because money doesn't grow on trees. And we knew that we needed to really you know, protect taxpayer money and make sure that we were spending it wisely. So we did not want to put a dollar into anything that was not going to return mean that a lot of people got enrolled. Um, and so we did modeling to make sure that we were putting money in to the best 
the best channels to reach people. And so what this uh, testing showed was that television was the number one driver of enrollment. Um, and so when they cut that budget by 90 percent, they zeroed out the television budget. Where, was there someplace particular on TV? Or like, like So national. We were no. on national television. You were on the NFL, right? We, we, we were on those programs like the NFL, like baseball playoffs, where there's going to be a lot of people tuning in. And what's interesting is we went into all of this testing thinking that we could really reduce the spending on television because it is expensive. And we thought that we could reach our young and healthy people better online. And it turns out online's important, but TV creates the level of awareness that makes the internet advertising, that makes email and phone calls and everything else more impactful. So it sort of acts as a rising tide and lifts everything else up. But the other thing, uh, you know, they did say that people know about healthcare.gov. We, we don't need to, you know, spend much to do that. We put out a poll a couple of weeks ago that showed the exact opposite. Only one in 10, technically 12 percent of people who are uninsured knows that open enrollment starts next week on November 1st. Even fewer know that they have to take action by December 15th. And so there really isn't the and that's, broad I awareness. That's the same thing that the Kaiser Family Foundation poll. I, I should have I, I should have used your <laughs> Kaiser poll, too. But and the other thing is that people don't know about financial help. And we know that's the biggest barrier to entry because people don't think they can afford coverage. And if they don't think they can afford coverage, they're not even going to go to healthcare.gov to shop. And so you have to make sure you're getting that message out. And I don't know if they're going to do that either, right? So we have to make sure that people understand the deadlines. We have to make sure people understand about financial help. And that's information people need to be reminded of every year. And I assume you have at this point you have to make sure that people know that the law is still in place. And we have to make sure the law, people know the law is still in place. It's one of the things that, you know, both of the surveys have shown is that there is a lot of people who think the law was repealed. Or in our polling, it showed that they don't necessarily think it was repealed, but they think it's going away next year. But the great thing or the silver lining to it is that if you get people the facts, it overcomes that confusion and that lack of awareness. You know, what we found that if you tell people about the deadline, if you tell people about financial help, it clicks something so that they no longer see or they no longer are hearing all of the confusion. They're like, oh, OK, I'll go and I'll shop. Um, but you need to do that reassurance um, to let them know that the Affordable Care Act is still the law. So what exactly are you guys doing? Obviously, you're, you know, you don't have a huge staff the way you did or you didn't. <laughs> you, you don't have as big a staff as you did when you were in the administration. I do administration. not have a staff of 250 people. No, I have. <laughs> we are working with a bare bones team. Uh, we are working, though, with people who have done this before. Right. We basically made a lot of calls and we're like, come back and do your job. Uh, the same job you had last year with the administration. But now we're just going to have to do it on the outside. Uh, what's interesting is none of us thought we were going to be doing this. I surely did not think I was going to be doing open enrollment again. I thought I had left that behind. Um, but what was interesting is that everybody picked up our calls, right? Because it is so important uh, to help people get health care. So one of the things that we're doing, we brought on Rep Bettle and Meredith Olifson. These are the two people that for the last few years oversaw uh, private business outreach and making sure that we were partnering when we were at HHS and CMS with those companies who either are part of the gig economy, so their, their employees are contractors and are not offered health insurance. The Ubers and the 
the Ubers and Lyfts of the world. Uh, so we partnered with them. Uh, and then we also partnered with, you know, a bunch of pharmacies and other businesses who are interacting with customers daily. And that could mean having brochures or having signs in the waiting areas to actually holding events. Uh, what's not surprising, I guess, now is that when Rhett and Meredith started making those calls to people who they had worked with before, they hadn't heard from the administration at all. Right. And this was always a priority for us because people need to hear about healthcare and getting covered from multiple sources. It can't just come from one place. They need to hear about it from people they trust. Uh, and so that's why we always worked with, you know, private employers and businesses to make sure that they got that information. Um, what's great is that everybody is getting back on board and they're like, wait a second, you're right, we should be doing something. Uh, and so it's going to be a, maybe a little bit different levels, um, but it is going to happen. The other thing is making sure uh, that governors and mayors and other state elected officials who are really on the front lines and making sure people get information, uh, that they they have what they need to do so. So we brought on Emily Barson, who ran external affairs uh, for HHS, who, again, is doing her same job. So basically, what our focus is on is doing anything that we can to get people the information they need to get covered. Uh, and part of that is just building out a very large army of people or businesses or entities who are willing to take that on themselves. Um, do you, I assume you have some kind of a budget. We do. We have a six-figure budget. Uh, the big question Provided for us, by? Uh, businesses, foundations, individuals, sort of anyone who cares about the Affordable Care Act and healthcare.gov and getting people signed up for coverage. Um, we're a 501c3, so we're sort of open to using whatever resources we can to make sure that we're getting people covered. The big question mark on our budget is what we will be able to do in paid advertising. In my dream world, we would be able to spend $15 million those last three weeks before the deadline, which is the most critical period of time. Um, that's not going to happen. Uh, but we do think, you know, we can do a smaller buy and still make an impact, but it's still a lot of money. It's still $5 million. I, you know, knock on wood, would love to be able to raise that much money so we could be on TV. If we can't, we will be doing uh, uh, digital ads for the uninsured. So really targeting them where they go and the sort of the websites where they're going to get their information from. Um, so we'll see what how much we're able to do on that front. We'll have a better sense here in the next couple of weeks. In the, in the past years, I know there's been an enormous amount of, of sort of attention to the younger people mm -hmm. and to uh, sort of ethnic groups, Latinos in particular, who tend to have high rates of uninsurance. Are, are there particular states or particular populations that you're targeting? So particular states, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, we are really focused on the states that use healthcare.gov, um, which is the 39 states that did not set up their own exchanges. There are states that have a lot more people who are uninsured because of decisions that the governor and state legislature have made. So those states that have not expanded Medicaid have a lot more people who need access to health coverage. So Florida and Texas are obviously the two uh, prime states that still have a lot of people who are uninsured. Um, Atlanta, Phoenix, Ohio. And the thing about Ohio that's interesting this year is they do not have a single navigator. Uh, they have zero in-person assistance at the navigator level. And so the question that we are raising and trying to figure out is, 
what's stepping in, right, to fill that void. Um, you know, Enroll America is also not on the ground anymore in Ohio. Uh, and so, you know, we are trying to – how do we get the information to people in Ohio in a way that if they do need that in-person help, if they do need that assistance, that they're able to get it, uh, which I think is – um, it's going to be tough, but we're trying to to get it figured out. So how do people find you if they want to get involved? GetAmericaCovered.org. Uh, we have a lot of resources that we are putting up almost daily right now um, to make sure that people, if they are uninsured, can get the help they need. So we are redoing our website, and we'll have it up, I believe, tomorrow. Um, uh, where people can make an appointment. They can use the connector tool uh, to make an appointment right there with a navigator in their area. Uh, but we also have a lot of tools for people who want to help. If people are wanting to help people get in, uh, get covered, uh, we have toolkits, we have information, frequently asked questions, basically everything you need to do to know to be able to go out into your community and help people get the information they need. Great. Lori Lotus, thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much, Julie. Okay, let's wrap things up with the segment we call Extra Credit. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently they think everyone else should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. Who's first this week, Alice? Well, I thought this was a very Halloween-appropriate story. Um, Truly terrifying. Uh, If you want to sit around the campfire and tell a scary story, I would crack open uh, an investigation by Reuters about body brokers. These are... for-profit companies that went uh, that solicit mostly low-income people to donate the bodies of their loved ones, uh, quote unquote, to science and research. And what really ends up happening is that these bodies get uh, dissected in sometimes very unprofessional and undignified and unsanitary ways, and sold in pieces for profit to basically anyone. Reuters themselves. <laughs> with almost no vetting, bought two human heads. <laughs> and they interviewed researchers who said that heads of lettuce are better regulated in the United States than heads of dead human beings. And it just some of the scenes in this story were just atrocious. And there's just so little regulation. The companies that do this have these relationships with funeral homes and they provide kickbacks for encouraging low-income people who can't afford to get their loved one cremated themselves to use this service and sell off the body parts without disclosing exactly what that means. And it, it was pretty horrifying. So definitely check that out. I don't know if this story will lead to any you know calls for stricter laws or anything, but it's very possible. Sarah? Um, I want to recommend a story from the news website Stat about this company called NERCS. Um, they are a um, online birth control delivery company. It's basically an app where you can order birth control pills or Plan B, and they are starting to expand into more um, conservative states and facing some pushback, particularly around the ability of women as young as 12 and 13 being able to use the app without their parents knowing to order contraceptives. I think it's a really interesting um, kind of window into the debate over contraceptives and the debate over telemedicine, kind of how much you can do over the phone. And it's interesting to see this birth control company, which has generally been in large urban areas, going into, it's a more hostile territory 
and seeing if they can expand birth control access there. Well, I'm going to go next because my story is kind of related. Um, it's from BuzzFeed. It's called, A Trump Official Once Suggested Women Who Get Free Contraception Should Swear They Won't Get an Abortion by Emma O'Connor. Uh, it's kind of a profile of Scott Lloyd, who I'm sure most of you, including me, hadn't heard of. He's the head of the Office of Ref- Refugee Resettlement in the Department of Health and Human Services. And, and he is now, uh, to the extent he is known to the public, he is known as the guy who blocked the 17-year-old um, undocumented teenager uh, from, who was who was pregnant from getting an abortion, even though she had gone before a judge in Texas uh, and gotten a judicial bypass, and it resulted in a whole string of court cases, which was ultimately decided this week by the full DC Circuit, uh, DC Court of Appeals, uh, that said she should be allowed to to get the abortion, uh, which she did actually before the Trump administration could appeal to the Supreme Court. Um, but this is, uh, I think, this is yet another example of the just exactly how anti-abortion and anti-contraception many officials are in the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, he once wrote that uh, that women should say that if you're going to, if you're getting uh, federally funded uh, contraception, you're going to promise not to have an abortion if the contraception fails. And his uh, response is also no more free contraception after that. And he said that women could just stop having sex until they're ready to have a child. Um, so there are, are people, you know, of this persuasion who are throughout the Department of Health and Human Services. So I think we're going to be seeing, you know, more and not less of the fighting uh, about reproductive health in general, abortion, but also contraception. Margo. Um, So later today, it appears the president is going to make an announcement on opioid policy. So I don't want to um, jump ahead and assume exactly what that's going to be. But I wanted to talk about some testimony that the FDA administrator, uh, Scott Gottlieb, gave before the House yesterday Uh, in which he talked about a desire to encourage more use of medication-assisted treatment for people with opioid addiction. So I just want to read a couple sentences from his testimony because I think it's kind of remarkable. Uh, He said, it is part of our existing public health mandate to promote the appropriate use of medicine. Misunderstanding around the profile of these products enables stigma to attach to their use. This stigma serves to keep many Americans who are seeking a life of sobriety from reaching their goal. In this case, in the setting of a public health crisis, we need to take a more active role in challenging these conventions around medical therapy. The stigma reflects a view that some have that if a patient is still suffering from addiction, even when they're in full recovery, just because they require medication to treat their illness, this attitude reveals a flawed interpretation of science. And uh, so two things about this. One, this really um, flies in the face of what Tom Price has said about how to the deal. Now former HHS the now Secretary. former HHS secretary has said about how to deal with opioid addiction there. You know, he said uh, several times and quite prominently that he was opposed to almost all forms of medication-assisted therapy, that taking these medications was akin to being an addict to a different substance, and that he really wanted to promote the use of abstinence-based therapy. So, you know, it really shows that Gottlieb is kind of forging his own path, but also... We should point out that both Price and Gottlieb are physicians, are MDs. Yeah, they're both, they're both physicians, and they're both, you know, I mean... Price isn't in the administration anymore. But the other thing that I think is interesting is that, you know, Gottlieb, I think, has had a very creative view of what it means to be in charge of the FDA. I think he is using this agency to make public policy in ways that previous FDA uh, have not. And one of the things that he said he wants to do yesterday is he wants to think about relabeling uh, these products in order to make it easier or maybe even to encourage 
physicians to provide them as a frontline treatment for everyone who has a drug overdose. So if you have a non-fatal overdose in the hospital, you're in the hospital, you're being treated in the field, he imagines a situation where all of those people would basically be immediately offered medication-assisted therapy. And that is really far from what the norm is in most parts of this country. So, And he's also done a number of other things about trying to relabel opioid drugs to try to reduce uh, the onset of addiction. And I don't know. It's just I think that his approach to this problem is very creative and worth watching. Good. Well, thank you all. Uh, That is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review. That will help other people find us, too. If you have comments, you can email us at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Sanger Katz. At Sarah Cliff. And Alice Olstein. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. We're good. We're good.